We're in this series, He's Broken Because We're Broken. This week we're going to look at the last few hours of Jesus. Uh, we've looked at Caiaphas last week, we looked at Judas. We're going to wrap up our, series, our, our time together today by looking at Barabbas. We're, we're familiar with Barabbas. But before we get to Barabbas, we're going to look at several other characters that I would say played a key role leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. What's interesting, these guys, they thought they were big shots. They thought they were pulling all the strings and all. But at the end of the day, they were really nothing more than pieces of lint on the pages of history. God's like, you know, just kind of blowing them wherever he wants them to be, wherever he needs them to be. Which reminds us of what we're learning in this series. God is in control and his plan will not be stopped. His plan will not be stopped. It wouldn't be stopped for his son, Jesus Christ. It will not be stopped in our lives. By the way, the message is going to be a little different than what we're used to this weekend. It's probably going to be more historical than, than inspirational. We're going to be looking at certain details and events. And I realize that for some of you, this is not your cup of tea. Uh, I get that. But we're all big people. We can probably put up with it for one weekend, right? But my goal is this. I want you to leave this weekend understanding what Jesus endured the last few hours. He was on this earth before he ended up on the cross for us, and I think you'll get a whole new appreciation, but that's my goal. If you have your Bible, John chapter 18, we're going to be jumping around through all four of the Gospels. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the side screens. The date's April 6, AD 32. Once again, we zoom in on a group of religious men who absolutely despise Jesus. They hate him. Now their hatred has grown to the point that they want nothing more than to get him on a cross. But for that to happen, several things have to take place. Uh, for example, they have to get him arrested, you know, and, and that's probably more difficult than you think because as we saw last week during Passover, you know, historians tell us that Jerusalem swelled to maybe two, two and a half million people there to celebrate God's faithfulness of delivering the people from 430 years of bondage in Egypt. So there's a lot going on. And these religious leaders, they realize a lot of these people, they've already been swayed by the teaching of Jesus. And they're thinking, man, how are we going to arrest him Pluck him out of this crowd without starting a riot. And as we saw last week, they got their big break when they secured the cooperation of Judas for 30 pieces of silver. He pretty much threw Jesus under the bus. And having secured Judas, Judas, who had been with Jesus for three years, knew that it wasn't uncommon for Jesus to go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. When he needed some time, some alone time with the Father, Judas knew that's where he went. He probably thought, man, if Jesus ever needed some alone time, it's now. He knew what Jesus was going through. And it was a perfect place for Judas to betray Jesus. And there's a couple of reasons. First of all, it's about 1 o'clock in the morning in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's not going to be a big crowd there. Also, because of the topography, the Garden of Gethsemane, it had a ravine, the Valley of Kidron. Uh, not a lot of places for these guys to run. So John chapter 18, verse 3 tells us that Judas came to the grove guiding a detachment of soldiers. I don't want to get all technical, but the word detachment, it could refer to as few as 200 or as many as 1,200 soldiers. But we get more insight in verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers, soldiers with its commander, and that word means a leader of 1,000. So my point is they obviously expected uh, more than they got because they showed up expecting a fight. They expected a battle. But what I think we often overlook in this story is the response of Jesus to the soldiers in verse 4, it says this, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them. So when Jesus heard the movement, the commotion, maybe he heard the, the jingling of the swords and the stepping of the boots, he went out to them, and this is what he said, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And John tells us the soldiers, they were so shocked, they fell to the ground because they were, they were confident that Jesus and these followers, they wouldn't be taken without a fight. But what they didn't understand was that 
Jesus had already submitted to what was about to transpire. See, that's why he was in the garden. You know, he went there. Father, if there's any other way, if there's a detour around what I'm about to experience, can we talk about it? If not, however, I understand it's not about my will, but your will be done. So he's already settled that. He's already come to terms with that. So he goes out to the soldiers and basically, you know, says, I'm the guy you're looking for. But notice he adds in verse 8, if you're looking for me, then let these men, referring to the disciples, let the disciples go. And you can't help but be impressed by the response of Jesus. I mean, just think about this. He hasn't had any sleep. It's about 1 to 2 in the morning. He's gone through the emotional trauma of spending a few hours with the disciples, kind of giving them some last-minute details before he goes to the cross, basically saying goodbye to these guys. On top of that, he's, I'm sure he's exhausted from the stress of, uh, of the conversation, his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. But even if he's, as he's being arrested, we find Jesus still more concerned for the, the disciples than he is for himself. And he's like, here I am, could, but could you at least let these guys go? And the other gospel writers tell us that at this point the guys fled. So I, what I want you to know is from here on out, everything that Jesus is going to go through, he's going to go through all along. And you come to the trials. And contrary to popular belief, you know, a lot of us think Jesus went before Pilate and then he ended up on the cross. It wasn't just one trial. There were six trials. Three were Roman trials. Three were Jewish trials. And it's because during the time of Jesus, you know, the Jews lived under Roman rule. And being under Roman rule, the, the Jews weren't allowed to take a life by capital punishment. They could try a man. They could bring him as far as the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court. But even there, if, if the Sanhedrin, if they came up with a guilty verdict, they had to then carry it to the Roman authority, which at this time was Pilate. And if Pilate then said thumbs down, then there could be a crucifixion. Before we look at the trials, let me just share with you some Jewish regulations regarding criminal proceedings and kind of just keep them in the back of your mind as we work through the trials. Here's the first one. If a man was arrested for a capital crime, he could never be arrested at night. As I mentioned, Jesus was arrested probably if you back up from the cross, 9 o'clock, you back up. It's probably around 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning when Jesus is arrested. They seem to ignore that. Second, if a man was arrested for a capital crime, no one cooperating in the arrest could be connected to the accused. And, and the reasoning for that was, if the accused was guilty, his followers were also guilty. But you know that the entire you know, arrest plot revolved around Judas, so they kind of ignored that. Third, no Jewish trial could ever be held at night. And this is what the Talmud said. It's kind of you know, the basis for all codes of Jewish law. I guess we would say it was their legal handbook. But the Talmud said the members of the court may not alertly and intelligently hear the testimony against the accused during darkness. But as you're going to see, two of the trials, the Jewish trials, they were held at night. Here's the fourth. The members of the Jewish court, after hearing the testimony, could, he not, could not immediately vote on the verdict. They were to go home and think about the verdict for at least a day. This is what the Talmud says. Eat light food, drink light wine, sleep well, and once again return and hear the testimony against the accused. Then and only then shall you vote. They don't do that. And then the other thing is the vote for guilty or not guilty, it had to be taken a certain way. Uh, the Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court, they would sit in a semicircle. It wasn't all in favor, say aye. You know, they would put the newest guys, the least experienced on the outside edges, and toward the inside would be the guys who had the most experience or the most clout. And they made the guys on the outside vote first and work their way in to make sure they couldn't be swayed or influenced by those who had more power, more clout. So it was a very specific way. They didn't do that. Uh, a lot of what we're going to see in the next few minutes pretty much is just a sham. But you pick up the first trial in John chapter 18, verse 13. It's probably about 2 o'clock in the morning. And it says this, They brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, 
that year. So remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Caiaphas. We learned that he was the high priest. So why would they even take him to Annas? He's not even the high priest. Well, maybe you remember, maybe from Sunday school, or maybe you've heard a message the time that Jesus cleansed the temple, and he just went in, and you know, he just kind of wreaked havoc on the place. And I remember the picture I used to see hanging in my little Baptist church Sunday school room of Jesus, you remember, with the cord up in the air, or, or maybe turning the tables and money flying everywhere. But the man who was in charge of the temple was Annas. He was the high priest at the time. And basically, he was a crook. He was like a mob boss. And there were several ways that he was, he was ripping off the Jewish people. One was, uh, when someone came to the temple to pay their temple tax, they had, to, they had to exchange their currency for the temple currency, and the exchange rate was atrocious. So he was ripping people off that way. And then if you came to the temple to make a sacrifice during Passover, you're probably not going to drag an animal 30, 40, 50 miles. So if you wanted to buy an animal at the temple... Uh, the prices were outrageous. And he's making all this money. In fact, it became known as Annas Bazaar. All the money was winding up in his pocket. A lot of historians believe that at this time in history, he was maybe the wealthiest guy in the province. Well, he eventually passed the mantle of high priest down to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. But Annas never forgot the time that Jesus came into the temple, busted that place up, you know, kind of he lost all that cash. And he's just been waiting patiently to get even. Now he has his chance. So picture Jesus. He's standing in this residence of Annas, 2 o'clock in the morning. And it says in verse 19, the high priest questioned Jesus about the disciples and his teaching. By the way, Annas wanted all of the disciples uh, not only arrested, he wanted them killed because he felt that, hey, they've already been influenced by the teaching of Jesus. So even if we get rid of Jesus, his big fear was, rightfully so, they were going to carry on his teaching. They were going to keep the dream alive, right? So he wants them dead. So he asked Jesus about it. But Jesus, he, he just doesn't give his friends up. He just, he just remains silent. But when it comes to his teaching, Jesus responds in verse 20. I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. You see, Jesus knew the law, and he knew that Annas was out of order by even questioning him. So, in fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says, under the rules of trial procedure, Jesus knew that it was against the law to solicit the testimony of any except witnesses. So Jesus is like, why are you asking me? Why don't you talk to the people that heard me speak? I didn't, nothing was in private or secret. Talk to them. They're the witnesses. So Annas, he's kind of sitting there with his face hanging out. He's left speeches like, I don't know what to do with him now. So they send him off to Caiaphas, for the second trial. Mark chapter 14, verse 55, you pick up the story. It says the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Now, this is an interesting phrase. Many testified falsely against him. In other words, they were lying, but their statements did not agree. So Caiaphas is like, great. The guys that are lying can't agree on their lies, right? I got a problem. I got to get Jesus to Pilate. I can't get anybody who can agree on the same story. So he just kind of goes right, and he asks Jesus directly. Again, it's illegal. Verse 61, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And, and it tells us in verse 63 that when Caiaphas heard this, he tore his clothes. Now, if you haven't grown up in church, you haven't studied the Bible, you're like, what in the world is that all about? Why is he tearing his clothes? I mean, is he getting, is he getting his freak on? What's, what's going on? Is he not like his garments? What's, and it was because the Talmud stated that when a high priest heard something that he considered to be blasphemy, he was to publicly disagree by tearing his garments. And so he does that. But then after tearing his clothes, Caiaphas, he asked in verse 63, why do we need any more witnesses? Which when you think about it, it's a nice out. I mean, who needs witnesses? Especially, obviously, he doesn't have any, right? So who needs witnesses? Verse 64. 
You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Well, they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fist and said, prophesy. So picture this. They, they put a blindfold on Jesus and they're like, hey, if you're a prophet, bam, who hit you? Who was that? Which one of us? So this is going on. And then it says the guards took him and they beat him. So understand, Jesus is alone. By the time the first two trials end, he's bleeding, he's bruised. There's still no verdict. There can't be an official verdict until Jesus has an official audience before the Sanhedrin. So they head there for the third trial to make it official. Now, Luke helps us here. Luke chapter 22, verse 66. Luke tells us that it was daytime for the third trial. It's probably about 6 o'clock in the morning. That was the earliest that the Sanhedrin was allowed to meet. Now, don't forget the Sanhedrin. It's the Supreme Court of the Jews. What they decided became law. It's not open for debate. You can't appeal to a higher court. There is no higher court. So when Jesus goes before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, if they say he's guilty, it's done. It's curtains. It's over with. They can then take him to Pilate, and Pilate can put him on a cross. So it says in Luke 22, verse 66, at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. Verse 70, they all asked, are you the son of God? He replied, you are right in saying I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. And uh, the best I can tell, this was the shortest of the trials. But at this point in their mind, Jesus is definitely guilty of blasphemy. But they know that's not going to hold up in a Roman court. The Romans could care less about someone who blasphemed a God that they don't believe in anyway, right? So these guys, they put their heads together and they decided, we're going we're gonna to switch the charge from blasphemy to treason. We're going to tell Pilate that Jesus is trying to set up a kingdom. He's trying to overthrow Rome. And Luke 23, verse 1 tells us the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. That's the end of our third trial. Now, you pick up the fourth trial in John 18. Jesus is before Pilate. He's an interesting guy. Uh, Pilate was appointed by Caesar to be the governor of Judea. Think of it as a governor of a state. But he's already on Caesar's bad side. Uh, there's been a number of riots, a number of rebellions that have broken out under his rule. He's made some bad decisions, dumb decisions. He lacked diplomacy. And because of all of this, at this time in history, in first century, uh, it, it, this, this Judea is just in turmoil. In fact, Pilate's already under investigation. And I'm pretty sure he understood that once Caesar begins looking over your shoulder, you know, your days are numbered. In fact, not long after this event, Pilate is banished to Gaul where he committed suicide. So he's a very, very unstable man to say the least. And because of his instability, because of poor decisions he had made in office, Understand there's no love loss between Pilate and the Jews. It's, it's safe to say that they hate him, but now they need him. They need, they need him to do their dirty work, right? So you pick up the trial, uh, the fourth trial, John chapter 18, verse 28. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat Passover. A Jew couldn't enter a Gentile's house on Passover, or he was considered defiled. So you'll read in verse 29, you can read this on your own. The Jews stayed outside and Pilate would come out to them. In fact, several times during the trial, you'll see him coming out, going back in, coming out, going back in. And it says in verse 29, Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? To which they respond, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't be here. If he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. So these Jews, they hate, they hate Pilate. I'm, I'm sure they hate the fact that they even have to be there. So they show up, you know, sporting an attitude. There's some, you know, passive aggressiveness going on. They're kind of like, you idiot, you know. If he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't be here, right? 
So Pilate responds, well, take him yourself and judge him by your own law, to which they replied in verse 31, we have no right to execute anyone. And that's a key word. When Pilate heard the word execute, everything changed. All of a sudden he realizes this is a capital criminal proceeding. He doesn't want to deal with it, but it's on his plate. So he invites Jesus to go inside the palace with him. And they had this little one-on-one time. And Jesus and Pilate begins to question Jesus and probe, and he's trying to find some evidence against Jesus. And he asks him in verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate can do that. He asks him straight out. And it's interesting, Jesus answers Pilate's question with a question. He says, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? And I think Pilate, he's like, I don't even want to be here. I'm not going to play games with you, verse 35. What is it you have done? He just wants to know, is this guy really in the process of trying to overthrow the Roman government? Is this guy really guilty of treason? Verse 36. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. In other words, Jesus says, Pilate, listen, if I were trying to set up a kingdom on this planet, you need to know my followers, they would be out in the streets. It it, it would be mass chaos. There would be torches and clubs and swords and there would be destruction and there would be death and they would be breaking up this sham of a trial. But look around, Pilate, you see anybody? No, there's nobody here. Verse 37, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate responds in verse 38, what is truth? And although it has absolutely nothing uh, to do with the case, it certainly says a lot about Pilate's state of mind. He is a messed up man. I don't think he has, at this point in his life, I don't think he has any idea what real objective sound truth is. And so when he hears Jesus talking about truth, he says under his breath, kind of as an aside, yeah, sure, what is truth? (laughs) When you figure that one out, tell me, right? And verse 38 says, with this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for the charge against him. So he probes, he questions, he examines, and the only thing he can find in Jesus is some guy who's interested in building a spiritual kingdom. He doesn't see in any way that this is a threat or it's going to negatively impact Rome. So he decides, this guy's not guilty of treason. He's harmless. And he goes out and he says, verdict, not guilty, not guilty. Now, Luke is the only writer who records the fifth trial, but I want to show you why it took place. Pilate goes out to the crowd. He says, the guy is not guilty. But notice what it says in chapter 23 of Luke, verse 5. They insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee. And the second that Pilate heard Galilee, it was like a light bulb went off. Brilliant idea. After all, he doesn't want this case to start with. He knows if he's put in a corner and he has to condemn Jesus, it's going to cause him more problems, more grief. He can't handle any more blemishes on his record. And so he remembers that Herod, oh, Herod, his lifelong enemy is visiting Jerusalem. And this is what Pilate thought. Oh, Galilee, that's Herod's turf. I'll let him deal with it. I'm done. And he sends Jesus off to see Herod. Now, Herod doesn't get the notorious headlines that Pilate gets. But understand, this is not a guy you want your daughter to date, okay? This is the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. So he's, he's, a, he's a dirty, rotten scandal, right? Herod's heard about some things about Jesus through the grapevine. And, and uh, he's always kind of thought of Jesus as a magician. He wants to see Jesus do some tricks. 
So he's excited that Jesus is there because he thinks, I'll get Jesus to perform for me. You can read the story yourself. Jesus wouldn't even speak to him, much less perform. Jesus wouldn't give him the time of day. And so according to chapter 23, verse 11 of Luke, Herod's soldiers, they, they mock Jesus. They rough him up a little bit. They send him back to Pilate. Meanwhile, back at the palace, Pilate's having breakfast, watching Sports Center, thinking, wow, I dodged the bullet there, right? Glad that's over. And he looks out the dining room window, and here comes a crowd. In the front of the crowd, here comes Jesus again. Immediately obvious to Pilate that Herod's not going to cooperate. And now we come to the sixth trial that's fallen right back into Pilate's lap. By the way, let me just say this in Pilate's defense. The closest thing Jesus got to a fair trial was from Pilate. But Pilate doesn't think he's guilty. He doesn't want to declare him guilty. So he tries several ways to, one, avoid the verdict, and yet at the same time appease this angry mob. And John tells us that one of Pilate's options was to rough Jesus up and let him go. So they beat him, you know crown of thorns. By the way, in, in those days, uh, these thorns that grow in Israel, they're about, you know, they're a couple of inches long. They would dry them. They would keep them in a corner. They would use them for kindling. So I'm sure they just ran over, got some together, put a crown together, <laughs> brought them out in front of the people and look, look what we've done to them. You know, will this appease you? And uh, didn't appease them. They wanted him on a cross by this point. It was a mob mentality. They wanted him dead. So now he, he has another option. This is kind of his ace in the hole. Matthew 27, verse 15 says, Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. This word notorious in the Greek means mark. He was a marked man. Uh, he was a criminal. He was, he was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist. He, he was the rebel. He was the rebel. He's the one who's actually guilty of treason. And he's over here in Antonius' fortress waiting the crucifixion. I mean, there's already a cross with his name on it, right? So Pilate thinks, you know, if I give him an option, do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? They're certainly going to say, whoa, we don't want that guy back out in the street. Yeah, go ahead and give us Jesus. Don't take Jesus. I mean, this is a no-brainer. But it turned on him. He never saw it coming. I think he was shocked. They said, we'll take Barabbas. You killed Jesus. I want you to see something maybe you haven't seen before, though. The name Barabbas is an interesting name. Bar means son. Abba means father. You put it together. Son of father. It's weird. Sounds like a misnomer. But in those days, famous rabbis were, were frequently referred to as the fathers uh, in the community where they served. In other words, son of father. It's possible. It's just possible that, rabbi, that Barabbas was a rabbi's son. He's gone bad. He's a bad preacher's kid, Right? And now he's over in Antonia's fortress, and uh, he's, he's waiting his death. Now, I, I want to kind of give you a picture here. In fact, i got a little map here. Let me put that up. The crowd, see the royal palace, the praetorium, it was this elevated slab of concrete. This is where the, this is where the crowd is, okay? And then you can see Antonia's fortress up in the right-hand corner. There, there's no more than 1,500 feet separating those two. So, you know, it's a, it's a far enough gap that... Barabbas probably can't hear what Pilate is saying, but he can certainly hear when the crowd responds, right? What did he hear that day? We're going to do a little play acting here, okay? I'm going to be Pilate. You're going to be an angry mob, okay? So I'm going to read Pilate's part, and when I point at you, you read the next word, okay? Let's just get a feel for what was going on here. Matthew 27, verse 21. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Ask the governor. 
Yeah, that didn't work for me. That, that didn't work for me. How many of you grew up Methodist? Grew up Methodist? Yeah, see, go ahead and put your hand down. Methodists, they're the nicest Christians, okay? They don't rock the boat. They just go with it. You sounded like a Methodist church on that one, okay? I need a Baptist church. Southern Baptist. Business meeting. They just changed the carpet in the church and you didn't get to vote on it. Now, I'm talking, that's the kind of anger, okay? So let's do this again. So you Catholics, they could rebuild the building before you went back. So you don't even know what happened. It's a whole new place. Yeah, honey, they built it six years ago. Oh, okay, okay. I know 60% of you are Catholic. Welcome to the Hope family. But anyway, we're having a great time. Matthew 27, verse 21. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Now see, that, that's good. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all answered. Now I did that for a reason. I have a feeling that Barabbas maybe woke up that morning to the sound of a crowd shouting. Barabbas. Crucify him, right? Now back over at the praetorium, at the palace, Pilate realizes this die is cast, you know. It's inevitable. Verse 26, he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. But before I, I let you go, I want you just to think about Barabbas for a second. Can you just imagine that morning for him? You go to bed the night before, it's your last day. Maybe he slept, maybe he didn't sleep, maybe he tossed and turned all night, maybe early in the morning, he finally drifted off just out of exhaustion. And he, and he wakes up to a crowd Screaming in the distance, Barabbas, crucify him. And then he hears the footsteps of the soldiers coming down the hallway, the keys jingling, you know, a key going into the lock, turn of a lock, the squeak of a cell door as it's open, and maybe a soldier grabbing him and shaking him and saying, Barabbas, get up. But not saying, Barabbas, it's time, but Barabbas, get up. Let's go. You're free. What? Free? Why am I free? Somebody else is going to be using your cross today. Who? Ah, you probably haven't heard of him. Maybe you have. Jesus of Nazareth. And this is only speculation. I can't find any record of it. I have a feeling that Barabbas attended a crucifixion maybe later that day. And maybe out of everyone who was there that day, like no one else, Barabbas identified with what was happening. I mean, think about this. Think about this. Here is Jesus dying on his cross in his place. And now we sit here 2,000 years ago, and we've heard the story so much, it doesn't even phase us. But think about this. <laughs> we, we read this and we think, that's like winning the lottery. I mean, that is one lucky guy. But this is what I want you to understand. No luckier than we are. Because just like Barabbas on a cross, we deserved because of our sin, because of our brokenness, Jesus was broken. And he died. So through, through his death, we could be redeemed and purchased back and restored into a relationship with God. Now this is what I want to leave you with. I think one of the biggest shames in life would be to be a religious person. 
to try to do good things. Give some money away occasionally. Maybe even look at your Bible, pray when you need to, show up to church. And never realize that God gave his most priceless possession, his beloved son, to die on a cross, to shed his blood, to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could be forgiven and restored back into a relationship with God. Not just so that we can go to heaven when we die. That's a nice perk. But the, so today, through the power of God working in my life as his follower, I can become the person he created me to be. Some of you could tell that story. Some of you have some checkered past. And if I gave you the opportunity, you would stand up here and say, let me tell you how God changed my life now, today. I want you to think about that. And if you've never come to that time where it says, God so loved, put your name there. God so loved Mike. He so loved Laura. He so loved John, Billy, Sally. Put your name. He gave his most priceless possession because in his perfection and holiness, we were separated by sin. But he loved us so much and he so desperately wanted to be in a relationship with us. He said, Jesus, will you go? And he said, I'll go. I'll go. And if you have never made the decision to accept that free gift, don't let another Easter season go by and come out the other side just as lost and just as separated from God. But see, he's a gentleman. God is a gentleman. He's not going to track you down. He's not going to make you. But he holds out the invitation. And if you accept it, he will invade your life and he will rock your world. Let's pray together. Trials of Jesus are history. Maybe your eyes have been opened to something you weren't aware of before. But more than that, I hope you came away with or come away with a renewed, profound, profound appreciation for what Jesus actually did for you. Because just like Barabbas, he took your place. He took your place. Father, I pray for those right now, this moment, who have never come into a personal relationship. They're good people. Maybe they've been in church all their life. But at the end of the day, if they were asked, why do you think God accepts you? you would, they would say, hey, I'm a good person. I go to Mass. I gave up something for Lent. I went on a mission trip. I read the Bible. But they would miss it all because they missed the relationship with you made possible through the sacrifice of your son. I pray that you would just open our minds and our hearts to what is possible in this relationship with you. A forgiveness of sin. How many of us, Father, our mental health would change emotionally, immediately, if, if we just knew that we could be forgiven? And not only forgiveness, a peace that comes with knowing that our relationship with you is so good and that you're, you're, you're a God who sticks closer than any friend or brother and you'll never desert us and you'll never forsake us. And not only that, you, you've already forgiven us for every sin we ever will commit. And not only that, you will empower us to be the people you created us to be. Doesn't mean life's gonna be perfect. Doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. 
But it means that when, even when we're going through those tough, dark times, there's this sense of confidence that I must be right where God wants me because I'm totally surrendered to him, as we saw last week, submitted to his plan. I pray for those right now who need to make that decision. And may you work, may you do in their heart what only you can do, Father. And we'll just give you the glory and the credit ahead of time for the change that's taking place. And for those of us who have been in the family for so long and maybe we've gotten a little cold and calloused, maybe we have a tendency to forget the price that was paid so that we can be in this relationship with you, so that we get to experience heaven with you. May we walk out of here with a new appreciation and that such a sacrifice demands an incredible response from our end. We love you, Father. Thank you for meeting here with us today. In your name we pray. Amen.